Thank you for listening to the Faith Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. Today's sermon for the 8th Sunday after Trinity, July 25th, 2021, is preached by Pastor Jason Goodham. If you have questions or comments regarding today's message, please call the church office at 612-824-5527 or visit our website at faithlutheran-aflc.org. Good morning again. Special welcome to those of you who are visiting us this morning. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I would at this time invite you to stand as I read the Old Testament lesson appointed for this Sunday. The sermon text is taken from Genesis chapter 9, verses 8 through 17. can be found on page 13 of your pew Bible if you'd like to follow along. Reading in Jesus' name, Genesis chapter 9, verses 8 through 17. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it, And remember that everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Heavenly Father, these are your words and your word is truth. We pray that this morning you would sanctify us in the truth, that you convict us of sin in our lives where that is necessary, and that you would comfort and encourage us with the promises of your gospel. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As sinful humans, we understand judgment probably better than we understand anything about God and about his kingdom and about his economy of salvation. We get judgment. We understand punishment for sin, and we know that bad behavior comes with consequences. Even those who deny that there are consequences for sin know this, Because everybody in the world right now is willing and capable of prescribing punishment and condemnation for those who are at the very least ideologically opposed to them. This sort of thing is expected. This is why God's activity in the Old Testament lesson this morning is so significant. God has just judged the earth with the flood. And he's done so in such a way that only a handful of people remain alive, Noah and his family. And as these humans emerge from the ark, God must address his relationship with them. How should and will his actions be perceived by these recipients of his faithfulness, but also by these witnesses of his wrath and judgment? It all comes down to observing how God acts in creation because as God acts in creation, he's also acting 
in reality. So as we turn our eyes back to Genesis 9 this morning, we'll first be confronted by the reality of the rainbow. As Noah and his family emerge from the ark, God proceeds to make a promise with them. Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Well, there you have it. God's own promise that this is never going to happen again. And this is all well and good, and in fact, by the testimony of God's own word, it should be sufficient, right? But what about the when the first thunderstorm forms on the horizon. Remember, we have every reason to suspect, according to the first several chapters of Genesis, that the first humans had never, ever seen rain before until the flood happened. There'd never been a thunderstorm until the waters of the deep burst forth and flood the earth. So what happens for Noah and his family the first time they hear thunder rumbling on the horizon after the waters of the flood recede? What will happen when Noah and his family experience the first rainy season in the newly formed Middle East and the rivers overflow their banks? I'm indebted to Martin Luther for pointing out this reality to me in his commentary on Genesis, and I will use it as a theme this morning for the sermon. The problem with God's words to Noah here isn't that they're deficient, it's that we're deficient. We are flesh and blood creation, and words to us all too easily become abstractions. Don't believe me? Ask a politician about the meaning of words. We see very often that words are many, but actions are few. As Luther points out in his commentary on this chapter, God has judged in creation. The flood was very real. And the flood was especially real to Noah and his family. And so God has judged in creation. He must now establish his grace and his mercy in creation. And so along with his word, along with his promise, and along with the covenant God delivers to Noah and his family and all of creation, God gives a sign in creation. This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. 
Much has been made and written about the rainbow. In the last few years alone, I've read several articles and commentaries about the significance of the bow shape. And we should remember that the only bow Noah and his family would have been familiar with was the bow and arrow. And building on this concept, many authors have shown how when Noah and his family first saw the rainbow, the bow would have been pointed at God as a sign of his sincerity. The symbolism apparently is supposed to demonstrate to us that should God fail in his efforts to be gracious and merciful, the bow would be fired at him. Now that's all well and good, and maybe there's some symbolism for us to take from that image. But I think in these situations, we really run the risk of making too much of an already good thing. The reality of the situation is that the bow itself exists in reality. It's not fake. God, in his wisdom, directed the physical elements of the world in a scientifically verifiable way to produce a rainbow after a thunderstorm. We're all witnesses of this reality today. Well, maybe not so much this summer when it's rained like twice, but I believe everyone in here has seen a rainbow in creation. And the wonder of it all is that the rainbow still captivates us. Just log on to social media next time there's a thunderstorm, say next April or so. And what you'll see is if there's a rainbow, you also see that 25 of your closest friends posted a picture of the rainbow on Facebook. The rainbow fascinates us. We love a good rainbow. God has given us a physical sign to remind us of the concrete promises in his word. And that sign is given for our comfort and hope. God has been operating this way in creation ever since. So we move from the reality of the rainbow to the reality of our redemption. The next way God operated in reality to establish his grace and mercy was through the sacrificial system. It was prefigured with Isaac and Abraham on Mount Moriah, and it was firmly established in the Levitical laws that were given after the Exodus. The rainbow was the basis for these physical and real promises. In actuality, and over and over again, the priests would enter the tabernacle, literally kill an animal, and literally pour the blood of that animal on the altar for the forgiveness of sins. It happened. It wasn't just a thought, it wasn't just a happy idea, it happened. Christ is the fulfillment of these events. To confirm, establish, and realize his promises of grace, mercy, and forgiveness, God operated in creation. God himself became a physical reality so that we could be assured of his attitude toward us. The beauty of redemption 
is that even though we only feel God's eternal judgment against sin, we get God's answer to judgment in concrete reality and history. The wonder of the gospel is that God has indeed judged our sin, but that the judgment was on Christ in our place as he hung from the cross. And this is as real of an event as your birth or the twins game last night. God doesn't leave salvation up to theory or abstraction. He places it firmly in history so that we might cling to it as we are daily confronted with the reality of our sin and of our sinfulness. It's not just that Jesus died 2,000 years ago. He absolutely did. But that reality extends today, even still, as the tomb remains empty. Your redemption was accomplished in history 2,000 years ago and remains real even today because that tomb holds no body. But just as Noah and his family may have had doubts and fears every time a thunderstorm rolled over their tents, God has provided comfort for our own fears about our own salvation. You see, we can talk about the historical reality of the crucifixion and the resurrection. We can sincerely mean it. But the problem for us in our sinful nature is that we don't see it. We don't experience it. We have a tendency in our human condition to only believe history that happens right here and right now. And so God delivers to us the reality of reconciliation. Now, if I had a dollar for every Christian I've talked to who at some point in time questioned their salvation or their status as a child of God, I'd be well on my way to my own Gulfstream jet. It seems, as Christians, that we are addicted to not taking God at his word. But it also seems as Christians that we will also go so far as to not even take God at his actions. But just as God took water and judged the sin of the world during Noah's time, God has taken water and delivered his judgment against your sin as well. You didn't really think I could preach a sermon about the flood and not talk about baptism, did you? Noah and his family make a perfect picture of baptism for us. So much so that Scripture even uses it in 1 Peter chapter 3. God has drowned your sin in the waters of your baptism. And as you emerge from the flood, just as Noah and his family emerged from the flood, the promises of God's Word are that you are saved. You are given life. You are God's dearly beloved child. And this baptism, this water, is the perfect antidote for your doubts and your fears. When you doubt your identity as God's child, when you question whether or not you really can be considered a Christian, 
And if it hasn't already happened, it will. Because Satan loves to use your sin against you. A theologian once said that the greatest deception of Satan was to continue to convict Christians of sins that have been forgiven. As you live your life as a Christian, Satan will taunt you. He will dangle your sin and your failure before your eyes. When this happens, God will deliver to you, yes, his word. God will deliver to you, yes, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ for your forgiveness. But he will also remind you of your baptism. He will direct you to the place in history where God promised and acted to make you his child. Your baptism may have happened years ago, but it is intended right now for your comfort and peace. And what's more than that, your baptism today is the source of your daily repentance for your sins. You are directed by God. You are prompted by the work of the Holy Spirit in His Word to be convicted of your sins, to repent of them. And just as your sin was drowned in, in the waters of baptism and God raised you again to, to new life, that is the picture of your daily repentance. As you repent of your sins, you put that sinful nature to death. And by faith, you rise again a new creation. Dear saints, your sin is very real. Very, very real. In fact, Luther writes in the large catechism that if right now you're unable to feel your sin, he questions either your sanity or whether you're even alive. If you're anything like me, it's also highly likely that you carry with you the anxiety of God's judgment against your sins on a daily basis. That you know your guilt. You feel your guilt. You experience your guilt. But the promises in God's word and the reality of God's action deliver to you the peace and comfort that God has saved you. God has forgiven you. God has redeemed you. He has sealed all of this in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in your place. And he has delivered this to you repeatedly in your baptism and continues to deliver it to you repeatedly when you receive Holy Communion. You see, God not only wants to save you, he wants you to know that you are saved. He wants you to be sure and certain every day of where you stand with him. And so to this end, God himself has, re has acted in reality. He has acted in history to save you. And all of these actions started with a simple rainbow in the clouds, a sign that just as God judges in reality, he also saves. He saves you in reality. Amen.
And now may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.